welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsen Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore, joining us in studio with our guest, another great selection, Arsen. And this is one of my favourite genres. It's short stories. All of these are linked, though, and it's all set in Colorado. Tell us who we have been reading for the month of February. We've been reading Rachel King, and her book is called Bratwurst Haven. And like you said, they are linked stories. They're all kind of linked by this sausage factory that's located in Boulder County. Well, we're delighted to have Rachel join us in the studio. Hello, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, the title of the book, it's, it refers to one of the stories. It's a misspelling, but it's also perfectly uh, descriptive of, of really this whole collection of stories. As Arson said, it's a sausage factory, so people can get that bratwurst uh, reference there. But it's a haven because there's so many different ways to look at all these characters who intersect throughout the course of the stories. And many of them are looking for maybe a haven or the sausage factory itself or indeed the bar where a lot of the action takes place is sort of one of those places too because it's where the characters sort of get to be together and support each other. First of all, why did you want to approach this in the genre of linked short stories where we have them all as standalone stories but there are characters who wander in and out of each other's stories? Okay. Um, so first of all, I just wrote the first story, Railing, um, and then I wrote uh, the story called A Deal, and then Poker Night, and then Bratwurst Haven, and I had four of them. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm writing a Link short story collection. So it wasn't intentional. Um, and once I had in in my head, in my mind, that I was going to write a Link short story collection, I started putting them in different stories. And then when I was revising, I made sure that the flow made sense and made sure there was an arc to the collection. Um, but it wasn't a conscious decision. It just happened. <laughs> so all these characters, you have, you have so many different characters that appear in railing. Yes. Um, I believe it's Lance's story. Yes. Cynthia's in there. Who's uh, in murals, Nathan, there's all. So you had, when you wrote that story, did you see these characters in a more fully realized way than they appeared in railing? Like, did you finish railing and saying, I have a, I have an idea about Nathan. I have an idea about Cynthia. Or was it just organically as you started writing another story and say, hey, this this could be the person in Railing? It was a little bit of both. So when I wrote Railing, um, Aaron's story, a, a deal that came right. The idea came right after that. Um, so I had an idea for him. And then other characters like Cynthia, her story was one of the last stories I wrote. I didn't know I was going to write a story about the bartender. Um, and then other people like Elena, she actually wasn't in the original version of Railing. And when I wrote a story about her, I put her back into Railing. Mm -hmm. So they came about in all different ways. So how do you organize in your head when you're doing this? Is it OK, each character gets their own story or how do I do you have some Venn diagram on your wall <laughs> where you're like, OK, they're going to walk through the bar and they're going to be in this story. I mean, how do you even go about organizing something like this? I think the stories came about by characters and plots that I was obsessed with. And so that in order to write a story about something and focus on a character and a plot and a place for a long time, I have to like be obsessed with it in some way. So that's how the individual stories came about. And then when I started organizing them, they're not organized chronologically. So they're kind of like intuitively, like you might organize um, tracks on a playlist or something like that. But once I organized them intuitively, I looked at them and I 
thought, how are they organized? Can they be organized better? And I noticed they started kind of, sorry, started kind of in the factory, in the workplace, and they moved out toward the town, and then they moved back toward the factory. So I kind of moved them around um, to accentuate that. And then also I noticed they kind of became more hopeful as it went along. So I also moved them around to accentuate that as well. I like so. the idea that they weren't chronological because yeah. it made me go back and forth and refer back and go where in, where in my timeline in my head. That also reminded me how you refer to it there. It's like you do a playlist. It reminds me of just how you naturally tell stories. We don't normally start at time point right. A mm-hmm. and get all the way to time point Z. We bounce around all the time. Normally when we're doing that sort of oral storytelling and and we don't often see that reflected that much in literature so I really really like that oh good thank you so we've talked about how you made these stories but why don't we let's dive into one of these you mentioned uh, a deal with Aaron Mm -hmm. I thought that was one of the more intriguing stories Um, so maybe you could take us through that just a little bit it's a pretty short story but it's pretty powerful and I think it does touch on some of the themes kind of that play out in other stories. Yeah. So Adil and Pavel are probably my favorite stories. So I'm glad that you asked me to talk about Adil. It might be my very favorite story. And like I said, it was the second one I wrote. So this story is about Aaron, who has moved from West Virginia to Colorado. Um, He has a lot of student loan debt, and he decides he just wants a change in his life. So he moves to Colorado, gets a job at the sausage factory, has a one night stand with a young woman, and she gets pregnant. And her family is wealthy, and they tell him that if he gives up the paternity to the child, then they'll pay his student loan debt, which I believe is about $30,000. So that's what the deal that that story is about. Yeah, and it's such a surprise, the story, because in the beginning, he seems like, I'm going to take on this paternity, I'm going to do this. But then when he's confronted with, like, his future, like, what's – I think she spells it out to him. She's like, well, you can not take the deal, and you could be paying – paternity for a kid you see four times a year or you could go to college you could get a degree you can have a whole different life in four years right and class plays a big role in that story yes um yeah he's from more of a working class background and she's studying to be a doctor so and his student loan debt uh he didn't finish the degree it was from a for-profit um college that closed down so yeah i mean that story actually if you want to hear a little bit about how i wrote it i wrote that story by hand in like four sittings and i cried at the end of it and i i don't usually do that with my stories but it really like hit close to home emotionally for me if not these things didn't happen to me but there was some kind of emotional arc that i felt that hit close to home um, well so the idea that it was very much around class i yep. mean class is a theme throughout so much of this and yeah. the fact that you have all of these workers who have very different backgrounds as we're hearing um but class money the struggle things like student debt that we don't often think of with the working class we kind of almost think of that as as middle class because apparently going to college will put you into the middle class but we all know that that's not the reality so you know talk a little bit about that and why why you wanted to set it in a place like Boulder so we have this looming city that's very affluent you know on the edges but this is a different town this is sort of on, on the fringes and a lot of people sort of living on the fringes of the economy in many ways. Yeah I'm glad that you noticed it wasn't just stereotypical kind of working class characters because I think people who are in low wage jobs which is a lot of these people nowadays are very diverse groups of people just um, people some people who have been to college who have finished college who haven't finished college who 
Um, the first character, he was earning a good salary, you know, as a train engineer, probably had had a lot of training, but hadn't been to college. And then he gets dropped into a low wage job. So there's just like a diversity of people who ended up in these in these low wage um, jobs. And um, I think it does. There is a con a big contrast with Boulder being close by, like more of an affluent place. Um, I think I wanted to explore too, just kind of a little bit of the gentrification of the coal towns um, around in Boulder County and the history of that. And um, I did live in Lafayette and Louisville when I lived in Boulder County. Um, and so those came to mind, even those are fictional, these are fictional towns when I was writing this, as well as um, a lot of my relatives actually live in Oregon City, which is outside of Portland, which was a mill town. And now it's kind of been gentrified. So there, the towns here, as well as that town where a lot of my relatives live and where my mom grew up came to mind when I was writing it. Why did you make the decision? You have Boulder, yeah, but then you did rename all these other towns, yeah. Like Sausage factories in St. Anthony, I think, right. and you've got a few other different. So why do that? Why not keep the regular so names, or, or why like, keep Boulder? You know, right? I think I wanted it set in Boulder County for sure. Um, so I kept Boulder. That was a reference point for people who don't live here. Um, and then I started to write in the actual towns, but as I wrote, I would hit up against things either historically like them being coal towns and things I wanted to tweak of the history so it would align with the character or just like geographical things how close the lake is to the downtown and the library and I just didn't want to be accurate if I didn't I wanted it to be emotionally accurate and um so I just said I'm just gonna change the names of the towns it also seems like it's so accurate in terms of capturing what these towns are you know, how they're in a state of economic transition. Many people listening might yeah. be shouting at the radio going, we're past that. They're already <laughs> completely gentrified. Yeah. And there are no livable uh, wage accommodations available. You know, yeah. but, but up until the last few years, those were the towns where people who weren't considered affluent could at least. Right, uh, exactly. You know, it's definitely in transition. Yes, yeah. and they really are in this state of transition. And all the characters are in some form of transition too. So yeah. that to me was just very, very realistic oh, that you've all of these folks in a state of transition. And we know this town is also in a state of transition. And, and we also know where it's going. And it's not a place that these folks will probably be able to live in yeah in the very near future yeah definitely they'll keep being pushed farther out um and i think i'm glad that you noticed that transitional aspect to the stories and that's another reason why i had them as stories and not as a novel after i started writing a lot of stories i thought you know i could i could make this into a novel if i wanted to is that what it wants to be but really they just wanted to be these stories about these people in these moments of transition like the towns were in transition and you write really well, I think, about relationships, and there's a lot of relationships in this story, from kind of this the serendipitous relationship in Strangers, where the guy drives up to the mountains and finds a woman right. there, to kind of long-term relationships, this one couple, I can't remember which story it is, where they're, he's moved to Arizona in their retirement, but they've- At the lake. At yeah. the lake. They've been together for 40 years. But talk about writing about relationships, and what, what does it take to- write a, something believable and, and you know, what, is, what goes into that? Um, for me, my stories are often about relationships. And so it's so natural for me to write about it that I don't think about the technical aspects as much as like that the story comes to me as like it's about the relationship between these two people, whether they have a long term or a short term relationship. 
And often it's about some aspects of intimacy and not necessarily like sexual, but it could be acquaintance or friends or other things like that. Um, I mean, I think just really staying close to the character and close to the landscape that they've grown up in and that they live in now um, is really important. Or in Strangers, that woman, she lives out near Netherland and um, she's waiting. She's on low income a list of housing in Boulder and then the other guy he's driving around and, and he meets her. And so um, just staying close to the state of mind that she would be in living out there and the state of mind that he's in, his wife has just died. So he's kind of aimlessly driving around. Um, so for me, the relationship has to do with the person in their landscape and then them coming together and interacting, keeping those things in mind. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. You did a beautiful job in that story. I thought because because she she's worry of him at first, you know, which is what you'd expect. I mean, here he comes driving in from nowhere and she's a woman alone and you get the feeling that she's had some history. You don't you don't explicate it, but it's there. But in time, when she gives him a chance, sort of, and he proves out that he's not a bad guy. Right then sparks start to fly. Right. And I think that's really interesting. Well, thank you. Yeah, that story actually started from both of their points of view. Um, and then I streamlined it just to his point of view. But I'm glad that um, her point of view came through, even though it was from his point of view. We're speaking today with Rachel King about her collection of linked short stories, Bratwurst Haven. It's all set in this fictional town that's in eastern Boulder County, St. Anthony, Rachel, we're going to have you read from one of the stories. Tell us which story this is. Okay, so this story is called Poker Night. It's about Monica, a woman in her 40s, and she's recently started dating Carlos, and he lives with her. Um, She comes home from work on a Friday, and she just wants to hang out with Carlos. And then she remembers that he's having all these guys over to play poker, but soon she decides she wants to play as well. So, The kitchen had quieted while Carlos was on a liquor run. Now the game in process, Monica heard laughter, yells, and burps. She put her book aside. In the kitchen, Aaron stood above the table, arms crossed. The other men sat playing. She ran her eyes over the players, the pile of money. You know the rules, Aaron asked. Monica nodded, smiling. She'd been good at poker before she reached double digits. Her uncle had taught her to bet on hands with pennies. You out already, she asked. I don't want to spend all I've got, he said. You want a beer? He opened it for her, and they stood over the table, holding Cor's light bottles. Monica's eyes flitted over the hands of cards. She clucked to herself when a guy didn't risk enough on a good hand. Her desire for a quiet night with Carlos was fading, replaced with excitement for the game. She'd finished the beer. I think I'll play, she said. Take my seat, Nathan said. I've lost enough. She set to the left of Carlos, a bottle of Jameson set to his right. Now you're in for it, Carlos said to the table. They all anteed up and Enrique raised the bet. She had two kings and two jacks and saw his raise. Enrique folded. Carlos went two more rounds, then she faced off with Pete. He had two tens and two queens. What did I tell you, Carlos crowed as she pulled the money toward her. Pete shrugged. She won two of the next five hands. Pete shifted in his seat. I'm low on cash, he said. Can we bet on alcohol? Carlos shook his almost empty Jameson bottle. I'd have to sit out. Of course you've drunk yours, Pete said. Like you didn't help. We could bet something else, Pete said. Maybe Nathan could cut off the loser's hair, Aaron said. Carlos turned his head. No one's cutting off my hair. Why, Nathan, Monica asked. Enrique said he'd been trained as a barber. I don't have my clippers, Nathan said. I have some, she said. Carlos turned to her. You want your hair cut off? Buzzes for the men, ear length for me. She smiled. That's Rachel King reading from that short story, Poker Night. I was fascinated by that, that this, this idea that 
let's start betting our hair. <laughs> At some point, this comes in because they run out of money, uh, run out of liquor, and so they, they go with the hair as a bet. And Monica's all up up for this, and you would think that's the only woman in the in the poker game with long hair that she she'd object. But what why where did that premise come from? That just honestly just came to mind out of nowhere. I mean, I did learn how to play poker from my uncle's betting on hands with pennies, and so that came from my life. Um, and I have been in situations where I've been the only woman among several guys in social situations. So that also came from my life. But as far as um, betting the hair, I just thought it was a good idea and ran with it. So. You know, I used your idea because I have a friend who uh, this is you know right before the Super Bowl. And I have a friend who's Kansas City and I'm Philadelphia. And she said we should bet on it. And she said, what should we bet? And she has hair almost down to her waist. And, of course, I have no hair. And I said, we should bet our hair. <laughs> and she looked at me like I was crazy. But I thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. I want to talk about the story Visitation Day, which was really heartbreaking. And it's about this girl, Elena, and the visitation is she gets to visit in a, in a public space her baby mm-hmm. who has been taken away from her. Take us through that, why you wanted to inject a story that was very poignant, very painful in many ways to read because of her past and, and this whole situation. Um, yeah. So Elena, she's a young woman. Um, she got pregnant around 21 and um, she is a suicide risk. So her baby's been taken away from her. So Visitation Day is about her seeing her baby for the first time since it um, she was born. Um, when I moved back to Portland where I'm from um, I was working at a library for a while and we would have people come in on visitations there so that's how I knew about the situation Um, and then in my mind Elena's character came to me just you know as writers do just from the blue but also based on everything I'd seen experienced you know imagined um, and I wanted to follow her and I think that she has a hopeful story in the sense she comes back later in the collection and at the lake when um she has a relationship or kind of a relationship with a librarian and that was also the editor's idea was to bring her back they said we want to hear more about elena so at the lake and murals were the last two stories that i wrote on suggestion of the editor to to fill out the collection i was wondering about the library aspect of that because i know that finding public spaces where people can have visitation with children when there's court ordered sort of observation Mm -hmm. is actually a massive issue. And there was a place in in Boulder County where a nonprofit that would offer a space like that. And unless you're involved in those or you've witnessed that in some way, it's the last thing on your mind. But if you think about it and you think of these public spaces that we have, so many of these human interactions are probably happening all the time, maybe a parent who doesn't have full custody is out maybe in a park that you could be in this public space sharing it in the most fraught emotional circumstances. Yeah. I mean, it's mind boggling to think about yeah, it. Definitely. There's a, a lot of things that go on in libraries besides checking out books that you don't often think about. Like it's a, a very much a public space. Yeah. One of my favorite things about a collection like this, and I feel like in your collection, there's a lot of these moments both big and small, is is when you see a recurring character. And so we talked about Poker Night where Nathan ends up cutting the hair, but then that comes back later. And you're like, oh, yeah, Nathan cuts the hair. But in this story, visitation ends kind of ambiguously. You're not sure what's going to happen. And so it was really satisfying, 
even though you're getting a totally different perspective and at the lake is much more about the is about the librarian's life mm -hmm. really but you're seeing from the outside kind of the end of the visitation story mm -hmm. and i thought that was really satisfying as a reader good i'm glad you felt like that yeah so i thank your editor yeah and i thank you for <laughs> writing it but i think that that did you feel when you finished visitation did you feel like did you personally feel i'm done with this or did you feel like i, I don't know if i can leave this story hanging quite like that I felt like I was done with that story I, and with the character for this collection, just because so many of the stories are open-ended, you know, down the road, I might have revisited her on my own without that prompting, but I'm glad that she asked me to revisit her as well. You have one story um, about the character Joey. Joey's featured in Railing. In Railing, we see him, he's kind of, he's an old man, and he's he's out on deliveries with Lance, and he has an episode where he's, you know, basically collapses, and so he's in bad shape. So then the next story, I believe it's the next story, maybe the third story, is Friendship, and that's his story. That's the story of his whole life in eight pages. So how how do you do that without making it feel like an outline, which I don't think it does feel like an right. outline, but how, how do you compress so much into so little? So first of all, sometimes stories come to me as like the two relationships, like I said, and I kind of explore that. And other times like it comes to me more conceptually. And that story, I very much wanted to explore someone's life over eight pages. And at first I thought I was going to explore it in relationship to the town. Um, and then I found his friend. And so it's actually kind of explored alongside his friend and alongside the town. Um, but I, I, I just, he, he, you know that he's going to die in the first story. And so I wanted to know more about him. And so that's where the impulse came from that. Like I wanted to know details about his life and you can't tell every single detail about someone's life in eight pages. So you have to have a touchstone. So I think that's how it ended up not being kind of summary as I was, there was a touchstone with his best friend throughout his life, as well as his relationship with the town. And his best friend is the one who ends up uh, with a sausage factory. And, um, so then you're tying it in. You're kind of giving structure to the book pretty early on, too, right. like telling us the creation story right. of this factory. Right. And I thought that was very, very interesting how because now, like in the contemporary in railing and most of the other stories, that friend's son runs the factory and he's Gus and mm -hmm. Gus runs it very differently than his father. Mm -hmm. So you had a really generational, I don't want to say conflict, but completely different feelings of what it was to run that business right and then also gus's daughter who wants to start a food truck in in Broward's haven she has her own ideas as well and underpinning all of that is the economic reality and the changing economic circumstances for i mean we talked about this the nuance of who we think of as working class and who right. we think of as middle class and how those boundaries are blurred and uh, Joby's reality of rent healthcare and and having a good job at the factory but then when gus takes over he starts to really push against uh, workers' rights in many right. ways, not paying overtime and, you know, cutting back on, on benefits and various different things. Right. And so so I did find that theme really interesting throughout the whole piece around the, the economic reality for so many people who could come from quite very different circumstances and how our concept of what we think of as middle class or working class, right. those concepts they're not accurate anymore. They Everything has been yeah. blurred. And my my um, mom's dad, he worked at um, a mill, a paper mill for 40 years in the boiler room. And um, her, her mom was a bus driver. And she always said 
her dad brought them into the middle class because it was like a union job, you know, and that kind of job. Now, I don't think that you would say you were middle class at all with that kind of job. So I'm sure that played into some of my exploration. Of, yeah. Well, you see that in the story here because Joey is under a deal that he made with his best friend. And he's earning twice as much as everybody else in the factory. Right. He's He is earning a middle-class salary, right. basically, but no one else is. And you get the feeling that probably 20 years earlier or 30 years earlier that Joey's may have always been well-paid, but it, the what differential was probably not nearly as much. Right, exactly. So where do these characters live for you emotionally and, and mentally <laughs> and maybe on that Venn diagram that you maybe have in your wall? After you finished writing about them, because what I love about short stories and how these are linked is that I have this sometimes when you read a novel and you have a very sort of final ending to it and it, it all gets wrapped up and all the loose endings get wrapped up. What's lovely about this is that they're all continuing on. And especially because the chronology of the stories is sort of upended that they're all happening in different you know, times. Um, you have the sense that oh, life is continuing on for all these people that we meet. So what what is that like for you? And, and where are these characters once you finish writing about them in a way that doesn't tie up all their loose ends? Um, so like when I was writing like 2016 to 2021, I was just immersed in the characters and figuring it all out. Each story, how they fit together and that kind of thing. And I don't think about them as much anymore. But when you talk about whether I think about them outside of these stories, I mean, to me, they're like people like I tried to make these stories reflect reality in the sense of that there weren't endings. And like my friends or my sisters or my parents, like my relationship with them is the same way. It's like not in it. There's no end to it. It's like there's another chapter in our story. So I think that's the feeling I was going for at the end of these. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned that one of your favorite stories was Pavel. Yeah. Tell us about that one a little bit. That seemed a little as an outlier in the collection. Um, So Pavel is about uh, a Russian immigrant and he was a teacher in Wyoming and then he gets busted for pot and he goes to jail for a year and then he moves down to this area um, after he gets out of jail and he becomes a drug dealer. Um, So... I again, it's like the class. Like he did go to college. Um, he did have a degree. Um, he got in trouble, and now he's a drug dealer. And then uh, COVID happens, and he becomes friends with one of his neighbors who works in the factory. So that's the connection to the factory there. Um, I, I really enjoyed writing that character. Um, I had like a friend of a friend was in a similar circumstance to him. Um, only it was like Pennsylvania, West Virginia, getting busted in Pennsylvania and coming down to be a drug dealer in West Virginia. Um, so that actually happened in real life, but he was not a Russian immigrant. And um, one of the reasons it's my favorite story, I think is because there is this man who is away from people that he's known for a long time and kind of trying to figure out who he is in a different context. Um, And that is something that I felt was close, like emotionally to some of my experiences, even though he's a very different person than me. Um, And I actually did have a Russian immigrant read that to make sure all the details were correct and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're writing that story. It's a Russian immigrant. He's a gay man. And I was wondering, you know, there, there seems to be some strictures these days of who can write what and things like that. And um, I felt that you did a beautiful job, I, you know, but does that ever come to mind? Do you ever worry about that or do you ever think I, I need to have somebody else look at that? There were maybe 10 or 15 years ago. You might not have thought that. Yeah, I mean, I would if I if I'm unsure about something, I'll have 
someone read it. Like I did have a Russian immigrant read that one. And then um, my brother's partner's Mexican. So she read a couple of them. Um, and so I just make want to make sure some details are correct uh, when I write from different people's point of view. Um, but otherwise, I try to find kind of like an in with the character, like I was talking about with him. There was some like emotional connection that we both shared, even though he's a very different person from me. Um, and he deals with his situation in a different way than I would. Um, so I kind of find that like emotional in and then I form the character around that in some ways. Or once I form the character, I see where the emotional in was. That's often how it is. <laughs> I form them first. But yeah. Well, we've been speaking with Rachel King today about her collection of short stories, Bratwurst Haven. They're all connected, as we have been discussing, various different characters walking in and out. And it just makes for a wonderful, satisfying read. And it's been our pleasure to have Rachel as our guest and Bratwurst Haven as our selection for the February edition of the Radio Book Club. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Well, as we always do at the end of each episode, we announce what we are reading for the month of March. Well, next month, we're reading Stephen Graham Jones. He's been a frequent guest to the show. He's going to be maybe tied for the most appearances on the show after this book. His new book is Don't Fear the Reaper, which is a sequel to My Heart is a Chainsaw. So it takes place four years later. There's a new killer. We're in Proof Rock, Idaho again. Um, the other thing I want to mention is you can come see us live on March 9th. We'll be reading Shelley Reed's book. Go is a River, and that'll be at the Boulder Bookstore at 6.30 on March 9th. And Shelley Reed's book is the April selection, but we're recording it live at the bookstore March 9th, so you can find out more at the website for the Boulder Bookstore. But also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We're going to have more conversation with Rachel King about Bratwurst Haven in After Hours at the Radio Book Club. But when you subscribe, you never miss an episode. In the meantime, for the Radio Book Club and KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host, Arson Kashkashian. Thanks, Arson. Thank you, Maeve.